Good morning, my name is Kyle, and I detected that my mic might be cutting out a little bit. Uh, and if that's the case, let me know in the back, because I don't like disruptions, technological disruptions. Anybody remember that last week? Lots of technological disruptions. It was like I was having cereal as a kid all over again, snap, crackle, and pop. That was pretty rough. The joke I'm talking about, not last week. It was pretty rough. I don't like disruptions in my life. Think about the last time you had a major disruption. I think the biggest disruption in recent memory, besides last week, it wasn't it, was when the fires came last December. I was teaching one of my last classes up at Westmont. I drove up. And I was, they put me, because I'm one of their prized um, professors, they put me in um, kind of a portable, one of those like portable units that's like a tin can. Uh, it gets really stuffy. And so, of course, you need to open the windows. But it's not a good idea to open windows when you can't see like 10 feet in front of you because of smoke. Uh, so we went on with class, though, with our mask on, and then we had to cancel class because it just got to be too much, and then, um, then they canceled. Well, they didn't cancel. They made us do alternative exams, and we had to figure out things like that. Disruptions. I don't like disruptions. I mean, they get in the way of my plans. I had the end of the semester planned out. I had a great sermon planned out last week, and I was on top of it, and I knew how to deliver it, and... Disruptions. That's why I think I like going to hotel rooms by myself so much when I'm traveling every once in a while for work and I can go to a hotel room and I can get that sign, you know the one I'm talking about? Do not disturb. I put it on the outside of the door and I go to sleep that night. I get up the next morning. This happened to me last February. I was doing some teaching in Austin. I had some I had a lot of uh, projects in, in writing that I was doing, and I just got to sit in my pajamas and write all day without being disturbed. Do not disturb. And uh, sometimes I wish like life had a big do not disturb sign. People get out of my way. Essentially, we've been going through the gospel of Mark, and we're coming to the end, and one of the things that we have seen is that when God invades the world in Jesus Christ, it causes a major disruption. Jesus gets in the way of lots of people's plans and lots of the status quo, and things get upended. In fact, in the very first chapter, we open the gospel with the heavens being ripped open and the Spirit coming down, disruption. The next thing you know, Jesus is healing people that he's not supposed to be healing. And they have to be welcomed back into society. Disruption. And then there's the demons who are happy tormenting people for lots of time. But Jesus comes and he casts them out. Have you come to destroy us, son of God? Yes, I have. Disruption. The Gospel of Mark is all about Disruption. And now we come to the end, and we see that disruption coming to a head. Let me pray for us.
God, as we open your word, we ask that it would do what it needs to do. And oftentimes that means disrupting us, getting in the way. Get in the way, Lord. Graciously get in the way. For Jesus' sake, for our sake. Amen. Well, we're coming to the end of the Gospel of Mark, and it is worth noting that what we have here is a story. It's a story. It's interesting that throughout this gospel, what we're not given is uh, didactic teaching, though that's what we want as Christians. In, in fact, the majority of the Bible is a story, that God gave us a story. And what's the point? One time, Flannery O'Connor, the southern author, was asked, um, what's the point of this story? And she looked at the person who asked her that, and she said, they were like, can you just summarize it in a couple sentences? She goes, well, if I could do that, then I wouldn't have written a story. But we all want to know the moral of the story. What's the point? And in fact, we read the gospel and we try to extract points. That's how we're taught to study it. But if that's what we were supposed to do, then why didn't God just give us the points? Why does he give us a story? Because I don't think stories work the same way. I think to get the point of stories, you have to kind of enter into them. It, you have to identify with them. That's the power of stories. And so what I want to do today is I want to enter in. And I want to ask you the question, where do you see yourself in this story? There are various characters in chapter 15. We're introduced first to the religious leaders at the very beginning in verse 1. In verse 1, we find that the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the whole ruling council of the Sanhedrin, they all gather together to hand Jesus over to be crucified. Now that's interesting if you think about it. These are the religious leaders. This is the religious establishment. We're in church. And that means that not all of us, but the majority of us are church-going kind of people. Some of us are church leaders, ministry leaders. Isn't it interesting that it's the church-going kind of people, it's the religious leaders and the ministry leaders that end up handing Jesus over to crucifixion? See, I think that means that we got to stop if we're one of those people and ask, why was that? Why was it that it was the church people that handed Jesus over? Why was it that it's the religious people that handed Jesus over? Well, we get a sense in the text because Pilate in verse 10, he perceives that it's out of envy that the chief priest delivered Jesus up. Envy. See, throughout the Gospel of Mark, we read that Jesus is gaining tons of popularity. That as he's going around and teaching, lots of people are gathered around him. So much so that when he gets to Jerusalem in chapter 12, verse 37, and starts teaching in the temple, we read that a large crowd is there listening to him and that they are amazed and delighted. And believe you me, that did not escape the religious leaders. 
and they are jealous. Because Jesus had something that they didn't have. He had popularity. He had praise. And he also, because of that, had power, influence. And he got in their way. Have you ever had it happen where you had this great idea, this great plan, and it just didn't work out? We, a couple years ago, bought our daughter a balance bike for Christmas, and we were so excited because we first saw balance bikes in Cambridge because all our Dutch friends brought them over. That's where I think they're from, Holland, because Dutch people ride bikes like crazy. They're the best bike riders ever. So there are more bikes on the roads than cars there. And so they have these balance bikes, and they're going, we like, that's a great way to teach Neve. So we pick out the perfect balance bike. It's her size. It's her color, hot pink. And we spend all this time putting it together, and we think we have the perfect Christmas present. And we get this Christmas present to her. We show it to her, and then we go to the park. It's the first time we're at the park for her to ride her balance bike. And then she sees these other kids across the park, and they come up as Neve's trying to ride her balance bike and learning to ride it. And she's kind of doing step, step, step. And then all of a sudden, these kids come up, and they've got those Razor scooters. You know what I'm talking about? And Neve looks at her balance bike, and she looks at the Razor scooters, and then she drops her balance bike and goes and starts playing with the Razor scooters the whole time. That's the last time she rode the balance bike. Like, it was done. And we were sitting there thinking, like, okay, let's go. We had this plan. Neve was going to love the balance bike. We had spent all this time. And then all of a sudden, these other parents come, and they upstage us. And we were like, get out of here. Get out of here with your Razor scooters. You're ruining our Christmas, right? You know, Jesus is ruining the religious leader's Christmas because, because they had a way that they wanted things to go, and they had worked really hard to make sure that they went that way. See, they wanted to see God at work. Don't, don't confuse that. They wanted to see God at work. It's just that they wanted to see God at work through them. They wanted God to see God at work through the programs they had set up. They wanted to see God at work through the traditional religious establishment on their terms and in their way. I mean, do you know what that's like? I mean, picture it with me. You've been, uh, you've been trained to do some ministry Maybe your background and, and educational background specifically qualifies you to do this ministry or lead this thing. And you start leading. You've led it for 10 years, and it's going pretty good. And then some, like, young upstart comes in. They don't have any education, any training. But all these people are like, they're amazing. Their teaching is amazing. Have you heard their teaching? Their leadership is amazing. You see, and they get popular, and then they get praised, and everybody's praising them. And then they start having influence because they're popular, and they get praised. And you think, I wish they would go away. I mean, why is everybody following them, and why not me? And, and, And that's not the way that God is supposed to work, and it's not supposed to happen that way. And there's a reason why we have this term, 
for people who found things and have a hard time letting go. It's called founderitis. Have you heard this term? I mean, because it's our human propensity when we found things and do things that we want to see it work the way we want to see it work. But what happens when God starts working a different way? Is someone else in another way? I mean, I often have it the case, you know, someone, it's funny, one time someone came up to me and they were like, a guest preacher preached, and they said, I have never heard anything like that on that topic before. I have never, and I was like, I preached on that two weeks ago and said the same thing. And I'm like, well, they're not preaching again. <laughs> not really. But still, there is something about it that's like, wait, no, why, God, can't you work through me in my way, in my program? But the, the religious leaders, they end up... They end up getting rid of Jesus and handing him over because, because he doesn't work in the ways that they want him to work and through the things that they're comfortable with. And so they end up choosing the comfort of their religion and what they know and what they expect over Jesus' new disruptive work. Can you relate? See, where do you see yourself in this story? Do you identify with the religious leaders? I know, I know I do. I know I do. And there are so many popular books by popular teachers that come out, and I'm like, why are they so popular? I, I could do that. I know that. But why does it matter? See, what am I jealous of? What am I worried about? I think that I'm missing out. And I am missing out. I'm missing out on what Jesus is doing when I fail to receive his work in different ways, in ways that I don't expect. What about you? Oh, maybe you relate. Maybe you can identify with the religious leaders. What about Pilate? Pilate was uh, appointed to be the governor of Roman Judea in 26 A.D., and it was actually a pretty cush job. See, because for the majority of the year, Pilate got to hang out in one of Herod's empty palaces on the Mediterranean coast. So he was just there sipping on lemonade, long walks on the beach, you know, enjoying toga parties. That's what Pilate's doing. Except for, except for, except for one time a year or so, maybe two, when... There would be these festivals in Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem, the Judeans, they would get maybe really a little too excited, maybe a little too nationalistic. So he would have to go to make sure that they didn't get any crazy ideas. Uh, but Pilate, see, he, like a lot of people in Santa Barbara, he did not let work um, take over or uh, prioritize uh, play, right? It, it, see, before... Tim Ferriss, and the four-hour work week, there was Pilate. And he knew, even in Judea, even when he was visiting there, he knew how to get his work done early in the morning so he could hit the bass later that day. That's why, in verse 1, we see that it's as soon as it was morning. 
that the chief priests come and deliver Jesus over because they knew that the Roman officials in that day got their work done early in the morning so that they could go and have leisure in the afternoon. So Pilate, he's there, ready to get his work done in the morning so he can hit the bass that afternoon, except one thing stands in his way. One little nuisance. This peasant from Galilee. Pilate says to him, you are the king of the Jews, verse 2. Now, I realize in your English translations, it's stated as a question. Are you the king of the Jews? And I don't have any doubt that that's what the intent was, but it's important that we see Pilate's tactics. It's actually a statement, and there's a reason for that. You see, Pilate, verse 14, he, uh, he suspects that Jesus is innocent. And so he knows that the fastest way to get on with his day is to get Jesus to deny the charge so that he can dismiss the case and move on. And so if he states it boldly, bluntly, you are the king of the Jews, he knows that Jesus will be, have to say, no, I'm not. But Jesus won't comply. Verse 2, Jesus just says, you said it. The sense in the Greek is, those are your words. Pilate's like, what do I do with this? You said it. Those are your, and so he gets frustrated. He's, Have you no answer to make, verse 4? See how many charges they bring against you? He's like, just deny the charges, Jesus, so I can get on with my day. But Jesus won't defend himself. Have you ever had one of those days where you had these great plans? I mean, you were going to go out of town, maybe, maybe to Disneyland. Maybe you're going to take the kids to Disneyland. Maybe you had a, a concert you were going to go see in L.A. Maybe you were going to go up to, to Cambria and enjoy the coast. And you just had to, you just had to do this one little errand. You had this, this turn signal on your car and it wasn't working, and so you were just going to run by the shop real fast, replace the turn signal, one little errand, and you'd be on your way. And then that one little errand turns into a project. Because it's not the turn signal, it's the whole electrical system. And the project turns into a headache. And you're no longer going to Disneyland, and you're no longer going to Cambria. You're sitting in a garage working on your car. That's Pilate's day. That's Pilate's day. You see, Jesus is there before him, and he is just in the way. He is the original inconvenient truth. The inconvenient truth that we want to be so convenient. I mean, we want Jesus to be convenient, don't we? But if there's one thing that you can know about Jesus, he is not convenient. See, we want Jesus to fit nicely into our schedule and into our paradigms. And we want his calling to discipleship to fit so nicely into our preconceived notions of life and our comforts and our frameworks for how the world is supposed to work and how we're supposed to view it. And yet he never does. 
We want him to sit comfortably with our ideologies and our idols. Like consumerism. And nationalism. And our use of violence and force as a way to get to what we want. But he just won't do it. You know, whenever Jesus comes into your life, it is disruptive. And he calls you into uncomfortable places and uncomfortable situations that just don't fit with your preconceived ideas and paradigms. I mean, some of you, you know this so well. I mean, some of you know this because Jesus laid on your heart to welcome international students into your home, and you're like, I don't bring people into my home, and I'm socially awkward, and I don't know what to talk about, and that's with people who are like me. What about people who aren't like me? But I sense Jesus is calling me. But, but that doesn't work because... Because we're dual income and Saturday is our day to get these chores done and to rest and to do this. But that's the time. Sometimes Jesus calls us to conversations with people. They're really challenging and really difficult. He calls us to be involved in other people's lives that are messy you know, you know, it's not comfortable, but we try to make it comfortable. Pilate tries to make it comfortable. In verse 6, we read about his custom to release a prisoner. You see, he would release a prisoner once a year at this time because that was a small price to, pl- pre- to pay to release a little pressure valve on the Judeans to make sure that they didn't rise up in revolt. Let's give them a little something and they'll be okay. And so most of the time, I imagine what Pilate would do is he would find somebody who committed some petty crime, petty thief, and he would release them. But he's got an idea. He knows how to make this Jesus guy go away. Here's what I'll do. I'll make the people an offer they can't refuse. I'll put Jesus up on the one side, and then I'm going to find the most heinous awful criminal I can possibly find, one that they will have to say, release Jesus, not Barabbas. See, Barabbas was Pilate's plan B. Because he knows that Jesus is innocent, except what happens is his plan doesn't work. Plan B does not work. Verse 13, they cry out for Pilate to crucify Jesus and to release Barabbas. And Pilate says, verse 14, why? What evil has he done? You can tell he's frustrated. I just wanted to get on with this. See, Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. And yet, at the end of the passage, verse 15, he still hands Jesus over to crucifixion. Why? We don't have to wonder, the text tells us, to satisfy the crowds. We call it people-pleasing, but it's a bit of a misnomer, isn't it? Because people-pleasers aren't really after pleasing others. Deep down, what people-pleasers want is they 
are after pleasing themselves. And they're pleasing others in order to gain some sort of affirmation or accolade or uh, to move up in the world. But, but they don't people please because they really are invested in and caring about others. And sometimes there are people pleasers who people please because if you don't please people, life just gets a whole lot harder, you know? Pilate's a people pleaser. He's trying to satisfy the crowds. And I don't think he really wants their affirmation. I don't think Pilate cares about that. And I don't think he really wants their accolades. I don't think he really cares about that either. I think we get a sense and a picture of why he's pleasing the people. Because if he doesn't, his life is going to get a whole lot harder and a whole lot messier. And they might revolt. And if they revolt, then what's Rome going to think? And what's Tiberius Caesar going to think who appointed him this job? You see, he, he lets Jesus go and might be his life, his head that's on the chopping block. Can you relate to Pilate? You know, anybody who has been in leadership in any organization knows the challenge of having to make decisions that people just aren't going to like. Hard decisions. And, and, and you struggle over these things because you know it's the right thing to do, but you know it's not going to be liked. And, and especially this occurs in the church. Especially in the church. Larry Osborne is a pastor in um, North San Diego County, and he wrote this book called Sticky Teams. In the middle of it, he talked about this experience of, of basically coming to these difficult decisions. And he says, here's what happened. Whenever we dealt with a controversial issue, his board, we spent a great deal of time discussing an apparently large and influential group of people known as they. No one seemed to know who they were, and those who did know weren't didn't seem too keen to identify them. But boy, did they have clout. It seemed to me that they were the largest power block in the church. As a result, before making decisions, we spent hours worrying about how they might respond. And afterwards, we second-guessed ourselves. Whenever someone reported, I've been talking to some people about this, and they have some real concerns. To make matters worse, I could never find out who they were. Or how many of them there were. For a people, he says, who had such power, they sure did enjoy their anonymity. They, the they-ism, is so difficult in making decisions as a church. I mean, we've been through this. Uh, but the reality is, is... What it ends up being, what Larry Osborne is talking about, is he's talking about the temptation to satisfy the crowd. To satisfy the crowd over doing what's right. And what you know what's right. Now, of course, you should know where your people are, and you should shepherd them through any change, and you should know the objections that they're going to have. But that shouldn't dictate how you make decisions. But, oh, who wants to be not liked? Who wants to have people hate you? 
Can you relate to Pilate? Who doesn't want to upset the status quo, who doesn't want life to get too uncomfortable. Listen, Jesus brings you comfort, but he does not bring you a comfortable life. Following Jesus oftentimes makes life more uncomfortable, more challenging, more difficult. And oftentimes we want to people please to keep the status quo and to make things comfortable. But the problem is, is that when we do that, we actually can't love. It's not loving. You know, I, I relate to Pilate. My, my first years of ministry here, I stayed up so many nights chewing my fingernails and it wasn't out of love for you. It was out of love for me because I was worried about what you thought about me. I was worried about the way your faces looked when I preached to you. I was worried about the decisions that I would make and how it would upset and ruffle feathers, even if I knew that they were right, or the decisions mainly that the session was making. And here's what I learned. I learned that actually the only way that I could love is when I stopped caring about whether or not I would get fired. And to the degree that I'm not worried about getting fired, I'm a much better pastor and I love you much better. Now, do I always successfully do that? No. But sometimes I do and I'm growing in it. But I don't think it's just me, right? We all have relationships where we're worried about doing the right thing because we're worried that we're going to get fired. We're going to get fired as the friend. We're going to get fired as the child. We're going to get fired as the spouse or the boyfriend or the girlfriend. We're going to get fired as the employee. We're going to get fired from the group. We're going to be rejected. But until we can not care about getting fired, we can't actually love people. Not love them the way they want to be loved, but love them the way they need to be loved, which are different. See, Pilate knows that if he doesn't satisfy the crowd, his head's on the chopping block. And life gets a lot harder then. Can you relate to Pilate? Where do you see yourself in this story? The religious leaders, Pilate? What about Barabbas? Barabbas, some would call him a freedom fighter. Others would call him a terrorist. One thing is really clear. Barabbas is very, very, very concerned for nationalism. He believes in his cause and he wants the Jews to have freedom. He wants to throw off the shackles of the oppressive Roman tyranny. And verse 7, we find out that he is willing to take up arms to do so. You see, Barabbas understands that this is a dog eat dog world. And in a dog eat dog world, might makes right. Well, if it doesn't make right, it at least vindicates what is right. 
And so what Barabbas believes is if you're going to make the world a better place, you have to do it through force. Uh, in other words, Barabbas believes that the kingdom of God comes through force. And I think a lot of people do today. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche has influenced a lot of people's understanding of power. And Nietzsche talks about how basically he believed that everyone is struggling to dominate everyone else. But when they realize that they can't, they form alliances with people that are sufficiently close to them so that those alliances can then go take control and take more power and take more space. And... A lot of people have said, a lot of sociologists have noticed that actually our political discourse today, uh, it's basically Nietzschean and Nietzsche's understanding of power. Let's make alliances, get our people in. It's not really about convictions and ideas. That's why you see people who are lining up with people who would never have to share their convictions and ideas. But let's do this in order to erect the right laws to take over to suppress others. And Christian sociologist James Davison Hunter in his book To Change the World and public intellectual and Christian Andy Crouch have both noticed how Christians actually fall into this type of thinking. They say that in an effort to resist the world, the corruption of the world around them, that Christians often make allegiances to get into power so that they can be in control. Hunter says, many, quote, many Christians unwittingly embrace some of the most corrosive aspects of the cultural di di disintegration that they cry, decry. By nurturing its resentments, sustaining them through a discourse of negation towards outsiders, and in cases pursuing their will to power, they become functional Nietzscheans participating in the very cultural breakdown they so ardently strive to resist. And I think each new election cycle bears out the accuracy of his indictment. That many Christians believe that the best or only way to change the world for the better is to defeat their political opponents by electing the right people and gaining the power necessary to Im implement the changes they desire. That most Christians, Hunter says, imagine, cannot imagine power in any other way than towards what finally leads to political domination. Now, why do I go through this? Because... I think that's exactly where Barabbas is at. The only difference, see, Barabbas and Christians today believe that you have to take the kingdom rather than receive the kingdom. Think that the kingdom comes through force and domination. Uh, the only difference is that Barabbas, whereas Barabbas was willing to use armed force, most Christians today just use electoral and legislative force. But they're both trying to take the kingdom rather than receive the kingdom. And so I have a sober question for you. Can you relate to Barabbas? 
What about me? Not just the way I do political politics, but church politics. Get our people in power. Suppress the others. Well, I wonder if you can relate to Barabbas, at least in this, his name. Barabba. Bar means son of. Abba means father. Barabbas is the son of a father. Are you the son of a father? Are you the child of a father? Some people think his first name, there's some historical evidence that suggests his first name was named Jesus. Jesus Barabbas, maybe so. Jesus was a very popular name at that time. But here we have a man who's the son of a father who is an insurrectionist trying to overthrow the king and the kingdom and who's willing to, if necessary, murder, and he did, and take up arms in order to take the kingdom. Does that story sound familiar? You know who's called the son of the father? Adam. Son of Adam, son of God, Luke's genealogy. Adam was the son of the Father God who rather than receiving the kingdom, took the kingdom. Who rather than receiving the fruit and the knowledge of good and evil, took the fruit. And he committed insurrection against the great king. He said, no God, I'm not going to listen to you or follow you. And not only did he say, no God, I'm not going to listen to you or follow you. Uh, He said, and if I need to, I will... Kill God. And the sons of Adam did 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem on a hill which the Jews call Golgotha and the Romans call Calvary. You know, I relate to Barabbas. Because like Barabbas, I'm a son of Adam who have rebelled against the Father, tried to rule my own life and run my own life and push God out of the picture and reject Him. And I do it over and over and over again. Can you relate to Barabbas? Because I have good news for sons of Adam and brothers of Barabbas and sisters of Barabbas. And the good news is this, that there was one who was also the son of the father. And he didn't take the kingdom, he received the kingdom. And rather than using force, he gave up force. And rather than using his power to dominate others, he used his power to make space for others and room for others by not carrying a sword, but by carrying a cross. And Jesus, he gets in the way of Barabbas. He gets in the way of Barabbas that day. And so Barabbas, who was supposed to suffer death for insurrection, goes free. While Jesus, the innocent one who was supposed to go free, suffers death for insurrection. Because he gets in the way. 
so that sons of Adam and brothers and sisters of Barabbas' world and their trajectory is disrupted and changed. Can you relate to Barabbas? Do you know what it's like to have Jesus get in the way? In the best way possible. Well, there's one more character in the story. And that is Jesus. He's called the king of the Jews, and rightly so, but he doesn't exercise his power in an ordinary way. Verse 5, Mark wants to point out how strange it is that Jesus does not defend himself and remains silent. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, Jesus, back in Mark 10, 45, cued us to the fact that he understood his own identity in light of this suffering servant in Isaiah, that he would give his life as a ransom for many, as a substitute. And here's the reality of it. You see, if the chief priests and religious leaders were to go on in power, they had to crucify Jesus. And if Pilate was going to keep his job and his head, he had to crucify Jesus. And if Barabbas was going to be set free, Jesus had to be crucified. And it's the same for you and me. When we've taken power, when we've tried to exert our comfort and keep our job and our power, we also crucified the Son of the living God. And yet, for us to go free, he had to be crucified. But out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Where do you see yourself in this story? And can you relate to Jesus? Because he wants you to identify with him who took on your sin, who rose on your behalf, that you might be set free, that you might see that there's a new way to exercise power in a new way to love and be part of his kingdom. May we learn what it means to follow this king. Amen.